Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'm happy to say that the following interview is brought to you with permission by the excellent podcast, Who Makes Sense? A History of Capitalism. I hope that you enjoy this episode, and I hope that you visit Who Makes Sense. Today is May Day, a holiday in celebration of workers all over the world. It's also the one-year anniversary of Who Makes Sense?, For a year, we've been producing this show, bringing critical histories of capitalism to your ears, and we're excited to embark on our second year. Today's show takes a look at the field of logistics, which our guest argues lies at the core of globalization, national and international security, and huge shifts in workers' economic and political power. When we think of logistics, we might focus on the colloquial use of the term. The nuts and bolts work of getting things done, like making a step-by-step plan or figuring out how best to get from one place to another. And in fact, that's exactly the kind of work we're talking about, though on a much larger scale. How did the humdrum business of planning a supply chain come to be so important to global capitalism? And why should we care about this kind of work, which most people find excruciatingly boring? Today, we speak with Deb Cowan about what she has dubbed the deadly life of logistics. You are listening to Who Makes Sense, a History of Capitalism podcast. Beasley. And I'm David Stein. Who Makes Sense is a monthly podcast devoted to bringing you engaging stories that explain how capitalism has changed over time. We interview historians and social and cultural critics about capitalism's past, highlighting the political and the economic changes that have created the present. Today, we speak with Deb Cowan. Hi, my name is Deborah Cowan. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Toronto. The title of my book is The Deadly Life of Logistics, Mapping Violence in Global Trade. And the book really tries to take a look at the ways in which military calculation and specifically the the history of logistics as a field of military calculation has really um, been become so deeply entangled in the world of trade that we need to rethink both the logics and geographies of imperialism. The book starts with a kind of brief history of logistics, focusing on modern, early modern warfare, modern warfare, um, but reaching back a little bit to um, much earlier times to think about the history of logistics. Uh, And then the main focus of the book, I would say, takes up contemporary um, sites and spaces and struggles where I think there is um, at least 
good evidence that some really significant kinds of transformation and experimentation is underway in terms of both security and uh, political and legal space more broadly. Uh, it takes us from the Gulf of Aden and uh, struggles over so-called Somali pirates to the west coast of North America and labor struggles over um, longshore work and, and trade circulation um, and to, to places like Dubai, where I think uh, important precedents are being set in terms of both the management of trade, um, labor and security. Let's start with this term logistics. What do you mean when you use this term? What kind of actors and processes are you writing about? I guess I would start by saying that there are, of course, very popular notions of logistics. Um, we refer to logistics, many of us refer to logistics all the time as the kind of residual or uncomplicated tasks, almost mindless materialities um, that require doing. So if you're organizing a birthday party and someone's got to deal with the logistics, that's sort of like um, almost like the grunt work. And I would say that that definition, that kind of popular definition of logistics is uh, remains quite powerful in terms of its uh, resonance and salience in popular discourse. Ironically, at the same time as logistics has become not only increasingly uh, complex in terms of being one of the more absolutely complex techno-scientific kinds of practices and industries um, out there, but also in terms of its ascendance over the last uh, century, really, um, we could, almost century, in terms of being at the center of the management of both global trade and, and warfare. So um, it, we could move from a more popular definition, I guess, to thinking about an industry definition and um, really, the the industry definition of supply chain management or logistics management doesn't have such a long history. It's really just since um, the 1960s and 70s when we saw the birth of this new field of business management um, called logistics management, which is now increasingly called supply chain management. And uh, in the industry understanding of, of logistics, it's really um, the central um, coordinating and managing uh, discipline of an industry that um, the World Bank defines as the backbone of international trade. So it's it's um, taken very seriously in the world of um, business management, uh, and is and is almost has a kind of imperial definition in those fields. So it it, it ranges to include like all forms of production and distribution and uh, and information management in some industry kinds of definitions. Could you tell us a little more about how you're thinking about logistics? It would be easy to think very functionally about the field. Logistics is, after all, about moving goods from point A to point B. But you suggest it's much more than that. In terms of my engagement, I really try to think about logistics as a form of, of techne, as a form of the how of power. So both a kind of techno-scientific engagement with, um, with calculation and the organization of capitalism and war, but a specifically material um, uh, engagement with with those forms. So logistics to me is defined not just by questions of the how of power, but an incredibly material, even when it's informational flows, an incredibly material engagement with those, with those problems. Can you tell us a little bit about how the book developed or was there a key piece of evidence that catalyzed the, the research process? There was a moment where I felt like what I was seeing was so strange in the world of national security. And that moment for me came when uh, 
in the wake of 2001 and the kind of scramble of um, border security, national security, uh, and trade security that followed, there was this declaration that came from many sites, especially uh, the world of, of, of trade management, that national security had become a threat to national security. And of course, a claim like that is confusing to say the least, but it actually made uh, some important sense that I, I felt really needed to be unpacked. The sense I started to make of that claim was really that traditional forms of territorial or border security were creating uh, profound disruption and uh, uh, systemic disruption to global trade flows. And so we saw that this kind of outright conflict, or at least a seeming outright conflict between the question of tightening borders and the question of facilitating trade flows. Um, but a whole new both industry and discipline started to emerge, um, a, a field called supply chain security, which is now um, recognized in um, academic institutions. It has textbooks. Um, and in really just a decade, this field called supply chain security has worked to recast how we understand and practice national security, um, the, the key being to the, this challenge of both facilitating flows and maintaining something like uh, border security. Um, and there's been a whole variety of efforts in that regard. And that's really the, the central context for the problems that the book takes up in the present. Can you trace the history of how we got to the point where logistics is crucial to how capitalism operates? You write about the long history of logistics in the military, but the field wasn't always at the center of business. There's a moment that is definitive in terms of where we are today, which takes place really in the post-World War II period um, and has been named the revolution in logistics. And for me, when I started working on this research towards this book, I had almost hoped to see a civilianization of logistics because my last major project and a lot of my prior work was on questions of warfare and militaries. And I was almost excited to move away from that just out of a kind of um, ethical, political exhaustion. But what became clear to me was this, this, this event that is referred to as the revolution in logistics, which indeed and very much gave birth to the business management um, uh, practice and field of logistics. So business logistics emerged out of this revolution. At the same time, it was in no way a civilianization of the field, but rather a kind of deepened entanglement between the worlds of war and trade, um, both institutionally, but also practically on the ground. So previous to the revolution in logistics, uh, production took place in or was understood to take place in a site called the factory um, and distribution was something that happened afterwards. And distribution, the, the whole question of transport and distribution was understood as something not at the center of, of business strategy and uh, not at the center of, of the model of accumulation in the sense that um, value was understood to be produced in the production process and the role of distribution was not important, not understood as crucial or critical to the, that key aim of the firm, but rather was understood as a way of at least cost trying to get that commodity to market. If you think about what I was um, already saying about the kind of popular notion of logistics as something residual and kind of unimportant that definitely follows in the world of business management. And we also saw that echoed in the world of the military. What happens with the revolution in, in logistics is uh, 
business man, the world of business management tells, um, starts to, to, to tell itself and to tell both the, the military and corporate world that we can actually make much better decisions um, and, and better meaning more profitable decisions if we think about accumulation um, and value as not something that that happens in production and then we just try and kind of get that thing to market but rather if we think about material management across production and distribution what that suggests is that we can think about value added across that whole business system so systems systems um, analysis and systems thinking become really important at this point what are the implications of the revolution in logistics how does it matter for business, but also for workers? The implications are actually um, maybe not obvious, but actually become really, really definitive. And, and one example I could give you, which comes from like a 1960s paper in business management, is really to suggest that if we take all these different factors of production and distribution seriously. And by, by that, they're saying things like warehouse costs, transport costs, materials management in production, inventory costs, um, the, the whole gamut of costs and, and benefits um, that come across the business cycle, then we can make much more profitable decisions, for instance, by moving a warehouse much further away from the production site rather than closer to it, if that warehouse can actually provide certain kinds of functions and, and save money. The, the short of it being, if we bring all these costs together, like the field of total cost did, um, if we bring all these kinds of costs together, we might actually get a very, very different uh, uh, picture of mo the most profitable geographies for business management itself. And so the question of offshoring or outsourcing is obviously important in terms of understanding anything about capitalism of the last um, few decades. But it's not just about the labor costs of production. It's very, very much about a complicated um, total cost of production, uh, distribution, warehousing, and other kinds of functions of, um, of business, the business kind of system or cycle. One of the things I would suggest is that transportation, what we, what we might think of as transportation, trucking, um, shipping, uh, various kinds of ways that we move goods, is actually uh, a part of the production process and not something that happens afterwards. And this is in, in many ways not a new insight. It's something that Marx takes up very centrally in volume two of, Ca of Capital. At the same time, it's not something that we're used to thinking about, that production is also transportation, that transportation brings value and is an active part of the production process. And the implications for this blurring of the factory and the distribution process are, I think, really profound in terms of both the logics of um, how and where things are made, but also in terms of what we even understand production to consist of. And the implications for this are that we start to see the importance of what has been um, very helpfully talked about in terms of just-in-time distribution or just-in-time production, where time and space become very, very crucially entangled and the speed of circulation itself becomes absolutely critical for uh, productivity cycles to kind of be effective for contemporary capitalism. But it also suggests that we can start to trace some very, very particular geographies to um, this, this 
contemporary architecture of capitalism. And those geographies are important both for understanding the world of labor, so we can think about um, crucial zones where disruption can be incredibly effective leverage. So whether that's in ports on the west coast of the U.S. that handle so much of the world's trade heading from um, uh, more production-centered um, spaces to more consumption-centered spaces, or whether it's thinking about indigenous uprisings and blockadings of rail or highway spaces in, in Canada or India or other parts of the world, whether it's thinking about um, anti-colonial uh, uprisings in places like the Gulf of Aden, where um, uh, so-called Somali pirates have been uh, disrupting uh, maritime traffic uh, in, in large part in response to things like the toxic waste dumping and new forms of imperialism in East Africa. We can think about how these things uh, land and are operating in, in very particular spaces and how our everyday lives in, of course, very, very different ways, depending on who we are and where we are, uh, but nevertheless are entangled in this complicated uh, global architecture. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of these other innovations that allowed for this revolution in logistics, perhaps, you know, most notably the shipping container, but also flags of convenience and wooden pallets. There's been, I'd say, a whole series of technologies that have been absolutely crucial um, in terms of making this revolution in logistics possible and so also making our contemporary um, this, the contemporary forms of, of uh, capitalism and warfare possible. And uh, interestingly, and maybe not surprisingly, many of these technologies also have a kind of military genesis. So we could think about some of the most important being um, technologies like, of course, the shipping container, um, flags of convenience. Uh, and I would also uh, want to highlight just the computer itself, because none of this could have ever happened without the computer and um, the, the capacity to calculate uh, in vast quantities and in real time um, what is now an incredibly digitally um, organized uh, enterprise. The, the shipping container is maybe the most obviously important and certainly um, uh, one that has very well deservingly um, gotten a lot of attention over recent years. So I'm thinking of Eleven's book on the box as uh, arguing that the single most important technology of globalization was the shipping container. And I um, absolutely um, agree with the emphasis and the importance on the shipping container. What the shipping containers allowed to happen is um, really for a kind of... Uh, intermodal as 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 it's known intermodal uh, entanglement of um of the 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 world of um physical distribution or transportation or just simply mobility the mobility of materialities the movement of stuff and this is in, the shipping container became so important because what it allowed um uh, shipping companies to do it allowed them to radically reduce the amount of labor that went into moving stuff. So the shipping container, um, what's, what defines it is that it's standardized. It's a standardized form that demanded that all the infrastructures of circulation, physical goods circulation, also became standardized around this one form. So that literally the size and the dimensions of this box 
became a kind of um, metric for the infrastructures of global capitalism. And so what it allowed was, um, for those who aren't familiar with the basic kind of operation of the shipping container, it is a box that can be moved from uh, the maritime world, so from ships, container ships, to uh, truck chases, to rail car, um, and back onto those other forms again and again. And it means that uh, the labor of actually moving goods has become much more the labor of moving these containers rather than unpacking and repacking goods themselves. So I had the experience um, early in my research of, of going up one of these big gantry cranes with longshore workers in a port in um, just outside of Vancouver. And, you know, I was literally sitting in this, in this very, very tall crane looking down through a glass floor at the movement of one container at a time off of a ship onto truck, um, onto the, the beds of trucks. And, uh, they were moving at a pace of about one container every one to two minutes, and this is not um, this is this is by eye by hand. This is not um, uh, completely computerized like it would be in some ports, like the port of Singapore. And so, just the kind of pace and speed of unloading those containers, in contrast to how the situation would have been before the container where longshore workers with the kind of giant hooks um, would literally get on board ships and unload pallets and packages um, has meant that there's just at that one, that one space of, of um, global trade, the port, the maritime port, we've seen ship turnaround time go from several weeks um, before the container to a matter of a few days in the context of the container. And so you can extend that um, that model kind of to every space and site along supply chains and think about the ways in which that both reduces labor time, um, but also changes the nature of work that transport workers are doing. You've highlighted very well how logistics has changed the geography of production and has also changed who does the work and how the work is done. And in the book, you make a larger point about how this transformation has reshaped how imperialism operates in the contemporary moment. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I think one of the ways in which the um, relationships between all of this uh, discussion about logistics to me maps onto and helps us actually diagnose uh, contemporary imperialism it became most apparent to me really in thinking about the, the space of the supply chain. In a sense, we can think about the supply chain itself this kind of as a kind of linear uh, form that um, follows the infrastructures of transportation. And so maybe the, in a sense, the kind of paradigmatic space of the supply chain would be like the rail line or the um, shipping line, these kinds of lines that traverse both maritime and territorial space that serve as the kinds of um, pipelines of flow, as as many business managers talk about it. So literally using the metaphor of a pipeline to think about the space of cargo circulation um, was to me really um, suggestive, suggestive in the sense that we could think back to uh, the kinds of geographies of imperial uh, 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 circulation and settlement um, that took took form in the kind of 
and settler colonial context, uh, the image that I um, offer up in the book of the kind of uh, line of the, um, this, the the kind of contemporary supply chain in contrast to the kind of, you know, the line of the stagecoach or the, um, the kind of movement westward um, that was also th- uh, not accidentally threatened by um, anti-colonial and anti-imperial forces like indigenous uprisings or um, piracy, uh, episodes of piracy. So I, I was thinking very much about this space of uh, contemporary imperialism. Um, and and this made me also um, kind of shift some of my argument very centrally in the book to think not so much that all of this is new, not, not that the whole question of the shape of the geographies and logics of contemporary imperialism are brand new, um, but actually that they have incredible resonance with a kind of... Um, earlier form of imperialism uh, that um, makes the nation state, the kind of territorial nation state, a bit of the oddball here rather than the norm that we're somehow deviating from. And so I, I um, kind of offer that up because the, the to me, the questions of space, uh, geography and materiality really do help us think about um, the, the, the challenging political stakes of logistics space. How do you think your work relates to the activism people are currently engaged in around questions of globalization and imperialism? It was wonderfully surprising to me that the reception of the book has been as broad as it has, and especially given that I spent so much of my time in these obscure archives of you know business management history, um, like you know kinds of inquiry that were certainly obscure, if not kind of pathetically nerdy um, and seemingly very academic. Uh, the, re- the reception of the book uh, has been really exciting to me because it's been certainly like there's academics taking it up and, and looking to it and um, thinking it through and engaging it. But I think um, I'm delighted that um, a whole range of different activist groups, uh, especially um, labor uh, indigenous activists and uh, various kinds of groups that are, have been involved in in port disruptions and occupations have have been finding it helpful, which was, I mean, definitely my intention, but not necessarily something I expected to be visible in the form that the book took, especially on a topic that has a kind of, a, I guess, um, a seemingly banal uh, focus. Um, and I would say. First and foremost, um, my contemporary intervention, which relies on some kinds of histories of capitalism, was to try and get um, some scholars and activists to move away from thinking purely about either the militarization of trade or the corporatization of war, both of which are profoundly important uh, kind of empirical shifts that we could trace in our present. We've seen, no doubt, we've seen the rise of private military companies, of mercenaries, um, and all of the complicated political, legal, and kind of uh, forms of violence that come with that. So without a doubt, we're seeing 
the privatization of military force. We are also, of course, seeing the militarization of of trade, and we can point to um, all kinds of forms of industrial security, the the entanglement of state security and extractive resources, um, the creation, for for instance, in the Canadian context of uh, state security units in our um, federal agencies specifically devoted to tracking and surveilling uh, for instance, indigenous activists that are blockading uh, pipeline projects or um, other kinds of extractive industries. So there's no question that we've seen the securitization of trade and maybe in deepening ways over recent years. But to me, what I was seeing in the world of logistics was something much more profound about the entanglements of war and trade, not at the level of just a com- kind of contemporary empirical deepening or shift, but really that had to take us back to questions of imperialism. So in closing... I want to ask you a question about an idea that you close the book with. Um, And the idea is that logistics is more than just a business strategy or a business discourse, but it actually affects how we think about life and death itself. Can you tell us a little bit more about that claim? It really starts with the argument that logistics as an imperial management science is concerned centrally with not just the, the movement of cargo, but something much more crucial and something much more um, uh, profound if we take seriously the military dimensions of logistics as not just something of the past, but also something very much ongoing. So so logistics to me is um, really important to think about as an imperial management science concerned with provisioning life itself. And by life itself, I don't mean something abstract. I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the kind of objects that I became very interested in very early on in this work after spending time with uh, military logisticians was um, the kinds of food that military um, militaries provide uh, their personnel, both in the present but also historically. So these the, the ways in which the military has understood uh, and organized food provision um, has very um, important implications for military personnel, but is also had profound implications for food more, much more globally. So we can think about pretty much like all forms of food preservation, whether it's canning or drying, um, the packaging of food, the preservation of food itself all comes out of war efforts. And the war effort being crucial because it allowed for the harnessing of both state and industrial power to solve technological problems with a lot of resources, Um, those technological problems being all about sustaining the life of soldiers, but obviously in the context of soldiers who are going to be taking the lives of others, or at least with that aim. And so that was one instance where um, the history of military logistics and right into the present suggested to me that logistics is not just about sustaining life, but it's sustaining life and producing death. Another instance I could um, just cite because it was really clarifying for me in terms of some of the very grounded ways in which logistics is very much about life and death and not just about these kinds of banal uh, facts of moving goods around um, came when I happened upon a kind of exhibition of global trade that was happening in the Port of Vancouver during one of my research trips there. And one of the stalls at this uh, exhibition was for um, uh, agricultural um, uh, genetics and the 
the booth was all organized around images and uh, promotion of uh, pig genetics. And the argument that the company was making was that they were um, able to actually engineer life forms, in this case, swine, pigs, to fit the production um, process of um, slaughtering and packaging the pigs. So the pigs themselves had standardized hip and width forms so that they would fit seamlessly into this production process, which is, of course, a a process of slaughter. And so I started to think about some of the very powerful ways in which logistics as a kind of um, way of managing and uh, uh, calculating and organizing the arrangement of life is also always tied to the production of death. In a sense, the queer theory question, which might not look like queer theory to many people who assume it's you know primarily dealing with sexual practices or identities, um, became more a question of what kind of lives matter and whose lives matter. Um, and the complicated ways that a kind of biopolitics of race and nation uh, and reproduction are inherent to the practice of contemporary imperialism that is organized largely through something like logistics. But if logistics is the field that's really concerned with organizing the material, the materiality of the how of contemporary capitalism and the how of contemporary imperialism, which is also very much concerned with uh, making um, certain some populations uh, prosper at the expense of others, then queer theory, as infused by kind of critical race and anti-colonial uh, theory, really want, help me to think about, or I, I feel, help me to think about what does it mean to ask differently, uh, to, to push differently and to prioritize differently around life itself in the context of the politics of contemporary imperialism? liked our show, make sure to check us out at whomakesensepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whomakesense and follow us on Twitter at whomakesense. And let us know if there are topics that you want to know more about. You can also learn more about Deb's work at our website, whomakesensepodcast.com. Who Makes Sense is supported by the Yale Public Humanities Program and the University of Southern California's Department of American Studies and Ethnicity. Join us next month for more Histories of Capitalism. Capitalism.